Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Kate Woda, producer of the show. Pharma Talk Radio is a nonprofit program to disseminate helpful information to those in life sciences, and in particular drug development. And this, of course, always includes patient advocacy communities. When I am not working with Pharma Talk Radio, I head up content and direction for Immuno Oncology 360 and Rational Combinations 360 at the Conference Forum. For more information on these events, please visit www.theconferenceforum.org. Today's show features a talk previously delivered at the 5th Annual IO360 2018 program by Greg Simon, President of the Biden Cancer Initiative and former Executive Director for the White House Cancer Task Force. Mr. Simon provided reflections on the work of the Cancer Moonshot and a progress report and outlook for the future of the Biden Cancer Initiative. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Okay, that good. All right. Um, I'm really glad to be here for a couple of reasons. Uh, first reason is uh, I woke up at 6 o'clock and I thought, oh, I can got sleep 30 more minutes. My alarm was set for 6.30. I woke up at 8.50 because my alarm was set for 6.30 p.m. And uh, that, my phone is not so smart. It should have said, do you really want to sleep until 6.30 p.m.? Um, that's what I call a smartphone. Um, um, but I, I want to, uh, it's always a little daunting for me to talk to a group like this because number one, you know more than I do about the subject and you're incredibly biased because you're in science. And as we all know, science, because it's all about proving things, makes people really biased. I don't know people who jump to conclusions faster than scientists. And that's why we put people with different biases on our board so they can constantly wrestle each other while the rest of us get things done. That's a compliment in a way because you couldn't be that biased if you didn't know a lot, right? Those of us who don't know much, it's hard to be biased about which direction to go in something like CAR-T therapy or immunotherapy or even whether to have immunotherapy, which as you know, started in the 1890s and was defeated by chemotherapy in the early 20th century. So we've wasted a century of doing what you're doing now because we didn't know how to do it other than giving people bacterial infections uh, which is what Dr. Coley did with Coley's toxins. Uh, now we have a much better way of boosting the immune system than making you slightly sick. Um, but one of the things that I always find, uh, the other reason I always find speaking daunting if I wake up, um, is the, do you know Jonathan Haidt's metaphor about the man riding the elephant? Anybody know the metaphor? We have one person said sure. Um, well, let me put it this way. You're the, you're the person riding the elephant, but the elephant is your subconscious. And we always think we're in charge when, in fact, the elephant's in charge. Um, and if you don't believe me, think about the last time you had a real big fight with your spouse or a loved one and ask yourself, who was running that show? Was it me or was the elephant? It's usually the elephant, by which I mean that little voice in your head that's right now telling you, where is this guy going with all this? Did he really sleep late? Did he just make that story up? Did he say that every week? That little voice is your elephant. It's not your conscious mind. It's your subconscious mind constantly moving you back to where it wants you to go, which is the biases you started with, confirmation bias, all kinds of reading the New York Times to know that Trump is wrong about everything, watching Fox and Friends to know that hallowed leader is right about everything. I mean, 
can, what I want you to do, and I'm not going to do what I usually do because I can tell you won't do it. I, I want you just to turn that voice off for a minute while I go through what I'm going to say without, without judgment. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to marriage therapy and they want you to listen to your spouse and then repeat back everything they just said without judgment, that's really hard, right? That's really hard. As an example, you know, when you do certain therapies, you have to literally repeat what the other person said without judgment, no rolling of the eyes. So when my wife says, I don't feel appreciated when you come home and talk about your day before you ask about my day. You've all heard that, I bet. And I'm supposed to just repeat back to her, I understand you don't feel appreciated when I come home and talk about my day even before I ask about your day, even though I had a meeting in the Oval Office. And that is not allowed. That is not allowed. So normally what I would ask you to do to move your subconscious away from you is to hand your phone to the person to the right of you for the rest of my talk. I know you're not going to do it. I know you're not going to do it. I talked to 1,300 teachers Monday or Tuesday in Las Vegas, and they all did it. They all did it. Now, they did it very loudly, but they all did it. And the only other group that's done it is nurses, okay? Nurses and teachers, hmm, what do they have in common? Altruists, empathetic. I talked to a group of CRISPR scientists, and I asked them, would you hand your phone to the person behind you for 20 minutes while I talk about CRISPR? And they absolutely refused to do it. And I said, so let me get this straight. You don't trust the person behind you with your phone for 20 minutes. And the person in front doesn't trust you. But you want all of us to trust you with our gene pool so you can do CRISPR editing for the next generation? Let's work on the phone sharing first, and then we'll talk about <laughs> gene editing. So I've been thinking about how to explain what we're doing at the Biden Cancer Initiative, and then I'll go back and talk about the moonshot for a minute. But it, it occurred to me that what we're doing is very similar to what you're doing. We're trying to take the brakes off of the cancer research and treatment system just the way you're trying to take the brakes off the immune system. And it's all very, very similar because, as you know, cancer looks like us. It starts as us, with a few exceptions. So it's very difficult for the system to go after somebody that used to be them. Now, in politics, this is not a problem. If you change parties, people come after you like white cells and they take you away. But in the body, if you hide right, it's, it takes what you're doing to light up the system or what I say, turn it, paint it red so, so the immune system can find it. Well, guess what? That subconsciousness I talked about drives our research system because that system dates back to just after World War II. And all of the things that we need to change look like us. They look like us. They look like the way you were taught. They look like the way your professor was taught and her professor and her professor. And that's what we call our cancer research system. But guess what? It's not us anymore. It needs to be changed. We need to paint parts of it red and say, why are we doing it this way? You know, my friend uh, that I met because I'm a really bad cellist, uh, Yo-Yo Ma, 
I met him randomly because he went to school with Al Gore and I had worked for Al Gore and I met him one day and we've stayed in touch. And he said something to me that I want to repeat to you, which is everybody thinks practice makes perfect. It doesn't. Practice makes permanent. Only perfect practice makes perfect. So if you keep doing the same thing the same way, even if that's the way you were taught, that doesn't make it perfect or right. It just makes it permanent. Now, 40 years ago, when we were talking about sharing data, which is one of our focuses at the Biden Cancer Initiative, that meant using either carbon paper in your typewriter or this new thing called the Xerox machine. And it was hard to share data. There was no way to share it electronically. There were very few ways to really get around to see people except in these big annual meetings you're all familiar with, like ASCO. Well, here we are in the 21st century, and in every other aspect of your life, they know exactly what happened five minutes ago. You eat, and before dessert, you get a survey. You fix your car, and before you get home, you get a survey. You want to know what the markets are doing in Japan right now? No problem. You want to know what the futures markets look like in Russia today? No problem. You want to know what happened to your medical records from your last visit? Big problem. So I tell my mother, and I think all of us have this, I know you do, this problem of explaining to our mother what we do. I explain to my mother, we're trying to build the cancer research system that you think we already have. Think about it. I'm very serious. Most people who aren't in your business think, well, surely a doctor in Tulsa knows how they are treating X-rare cancer the way they do in New York or Boston. That's not true. Surely, when something does work in an individual patient, that word gets spread very quickly and other people can do a clinical trial around that. No, that's not true. Surely I can get my medical records and and put them into a research repository, whether I have the BRCA gene or whether I have uh, some other single gene defect so people can study my population problem. That's not true. Surely the doctor knows What's the alternative now to the traditional brutal chemotherapy and radiation in every cancer center in the country to the same degree? And that's not true. And surely we are starting to fund young people and women and minorities to a great extent so we can get a new perspective on all of this, as well as the priorities for our research and the way we do clinical trials. And that's not true. So everything you think should be true, that you may even think is true, they're not true. And the reason we don't see it is because it looks like us, because that's the way we've always done it. And then when something really new and wonderful happens, CAR-T therapy, advance of the year, like your own personal Oscars, we're stuck with not knowing the medical history of the people in the trials. We're stuck with too many trials that are going to use thousands and thousands of patients in the control arms for standard therapies that we already have plenty of data about. And we don't know yet the outcomes of the same therapy in different cancers. Something that works in melanoma may be fatal in multiple myeloma. So all of these things lead me to the conclusion that we all want to have that system because we all think we have that system, but we don't. So how do you change that? And of course, the answer is not just money. The answer is culture, and you know this. The answer is culture. It always has been. And the culture has shifted from the white man culture of Jonas Salk in the 50s to, 
you know, people like Jennifer Doudna, who was one of the co-developers of CRISPR, so that we've got young people from different walks of life contributing to a science and the things that are holding you back, the sail in the water, the anchor, the emergency brake you forgot to take off, is that we still don't have patients at the center. We still don't know enough about them because our medical record system sucks because it's a billing system. We don't have a medical record system. This is important when you're going to do something that's going to be as invasive and powerful as immunotherapy. And I, I, I have an analogy for our medical record system. My Uncle Tom was crazy as a hoot owl. And I'm not making that up. Before every sentence, he would go, whoop. And so he would come over for Thanksgiving. He'd go, whoop, how you doing, Gregory? And I'd say, fine, Uncle Tom, how are you? Whoop, I'm fine. This is like, you know, I knew him my, a long time, and he did this. He never let up. Well, he was a hoarder of the first degree. He would love this room because he could fill it to the ceiling. <clears throat> and in fact, he filled his house to the ceiling. Every surface, the toilet, the oven, the bathtub, the bed, everything was covered with stuff. I have no idea where he slept or did anything else for that matter. And when he died and we had to go through all that, there were thousands of junk papers and all this, but every now and then there'd be this incredible find. All of the property deeds from my grandfather during the Depression where he hid all of his assets by moving them from child to child, all of whom he had named with the same initials. So we went down, we found my father's ticket home from World War II on the Queen Mary from London. We go down a little farther, we found my father's gun from World War II, Colt 45, with a bag of bullets where he had dropped it when he came home from the war and nobody moved it for 70 years. And then my mother mailed it to me. The gun and the bullets. Same box, post office, in 2003. So there you go. So why do I say that? <clears throat> in this hoarder's house, there was a lot of valuable stuff you couldn't get to. That's our medical record system and our health record system. Every hospital is a hoarder. Every cancer center is a hoarder. They have lots of valuable stuff, and it never leaves the building where it was born. When I was treated for leukemia at Sloan Kettering, all my outpatient stuff was online in 20 minutes because it's just blood tests, basically. When I was in the hospital for five days of the first treatment, None of that is online. They don't want me to see that. They don't want me to know what the residents thought and told the doctor, right? And now that I'm in Washington full-time and GW is where I just get checked, they're online too, but you know the punchline, right? Sloan Kettering had to fax all my information to GW even though they're both online. Now, if you called a business partner and said, I'm going to email you X, Y, and Z, and they said, oh, I'm sorry, you live in Oklahoma and I'm in Massachusetts, you're going to have to fax it to me. That's what we're doing, people. That is what we're doing. It's another way to look at it, maybe even more appropriate, is it's insider trading. I know stuff you don't know. You know stuff I don't know. They don't know any of it. We'll just keep sharing just the two of us, right? In finance, it's a bad idea. In health, it's the practice. It's the practice. So what are we going to do about it? So we have Joe Biden and Jill Biden who are totally involved in this and very authentically passionate, as you can imagine. We have a terrific board and advisors, and we focused initially on three things, data sharing, data standards, and clinical trial changes. 
Why data standards? Well, guess what? We don't have any. We have 50, but we don't have a standard for pathology reports, for post-treatment reports, for medical record data input. So I asked the heads of the five biggest cancer centers in the country, would you trust a pathology report from another institution in the room? And somebody yelled out, I don't even trust them from my institution. <laughs> right? And, and, you know, we're, we're talking major institutions, which won't be named Dana-Farber. And um, <clears throat> so standards, we've decided to do it the old-fashioned way, which is to try to get people to set one, not a new one, but to take each use case of different cancers and go to standard-setting bodies and say, okay, here's the deal. Everybody's going to have to start describing tumor margins like this. Everybody's going to have to start describing certain kinds of metastases like this because we can't have everything start over every time you go to another doctor. And you can't have data sharing if you don't have data standards because what you're sharing is Tower of Babel information. And then there's clinical trials. Now, when we were in the White House, there was a, we, we did something called cancers.trials.gov, which was devoted to English language and Spanish language real word searching of clinical trials in your geography so that people could actually find if there's a myeloma trial in Little Rock versus one in New York or Boston and to do it in English. Now, you think this shouldn't be a problem? Do you know who Stephanie Joho is? Anybody? Okay, you need to know Stephanie Joho because when your mother asks you what you do, you should say, I help save Stephanie Joho. So Stephanie Joho was a 23-year-old with stage 4 colorectal cancer. She had Lynch syndrome. She was being treated at Sloan Kettering, and they sent her home and said, sorry, you're done. Her sister, not her doctor, went online and found a clinical trial in immunotherapy at Johns Hopkins with Drew Pardall. She is now a healthy, thriving 26-year-old. She was on stage with Obama. We put her there when he signed the 21st Century Cures Act that put $1.8 billion into the cancer moonshot. That's what we're talking about, was that here's a young woman on her deathbed who got off her deathbed because her sister found the trial at Johns Hopkins. We've got to do a little better than that. Caregivers have enough to do without becoming researchers. So the thing about clinical trials is patients want to know things you never tell them. How many hours of visit? How many times am I going to get stuck? What's it going to cost me? Are you going to pay for my parking? Because some people, that's a big problem. 40 bucks a day to go to a trial to help you? Maybe help them, maybe not. These matter. Every patient meeting I go to when they talk about clinical trials, first thing that comes up is it's so expensive just to get there, hire a daycare person, have a dog walker, whatever it is, and then they won't even pay for my parking. Now, you may think that's trivial. It is not trivial. It is not trivial. Because the people we're talking about aren't middle-class New Yorkers. They're people who live in rural areas, especially in community centers. So we need to make trials more understandable to people. We need to have fewer trials. I saw the statistics that were up there earlier about the immunotherapy trials. If we had more collaboration in industry because we weren't so worried about each indication being a little different, <clears throat> we could save hundreds of thousands of patients going through unnecessary control arms 
And we could have collaborative trials with combination drugs that would move everything forward, but that's not the way we practice it. That's the permanent practice, but it's not the perfect practice. So let me tell one quick thing about the moonshot. The moonshot is over from a legal standpoint. It had a one-year charter. And when we were in the White House, we pulled 20 groups together and said, where do you touch patients in their journey from prevention through survivorship in cancer? And how can you do twice the job, twice as well, with the money you have now? And that's, you can look that up on, if you just Google Cancer Moonshot uh, report, there were over 80 collaborations, innovations that people put together, public sector, private sector. But here is the problem. Quick three cancers. My cancer, CLL, which I found in a physical and was treated a year later in six months, and I was perfectly fine. My friend Alex, who had glioblastoma the same time I got diagnosed with CLL, I knew she would live 18 months. 18 months later, as I finished my chemo, she passed away. My other friend, Bard, who died a few weeks ago under Washington State's Death with Dignity Act, had tried to fund his own trial in multiple myeloma. He was wealthy from a company he had sold many years ago. They never got the trial started in a year and a half. He flew to Sloan Kettering to get into a trial. Oops, his last chemo was too close to the entry date. He'd have to go back to Seattle. They could have looked that up. He sent some of his bone marrow tissue to Dana-Farber, and then they decided to lock the trial while they did some data auditing, so that didn't happen, but he'd already given them his tissue. Why do I bring this up? Well, some cancers like mine, we can do a great job with. Other cancers, like multiple myeloma, we often do a great job, but not always. Glioblastoma, never. So when people ask me, why were you, why was the, what did the cancer moonshot think it could possibly get done in nine months? I tell them, listen, you can't finish anything other than a baby in nine months, but that's a pretty big deal. But you can start something that can make a huge impact on people's lives if you're willing to challenge the way you do things starting now. And besides, nine months was half the life of my friend Alex. Half the life of my friend Alex after her diagnosis. That's a long time, but a short time. And the question isn't, what can you get done in nine months? The question is, what are you willing to start in the next nine months to make a difference in people's lives by bringing new discoveries to them faster, by taking patients' viewpoints into consideration much more early in the process, and by asking yourself, is this practice perfect, or is this just the way I've always done it, and the person who trained me has always done it, and the way they've always done it from generations ago? We have to light up everything in the system that we thought was us that's slowing us down and go after it. And that's what the Biden Cancer Initiative is trying to do. And as somebody who's gone through traditional chemo once, I'll never have to do it again. If I had a remission, God forbid, I would be on an immunotherapy drug. This is a wonderful thing. But in order to make it more wonderful, we have to ask ourselves, what old practices, what old opinions am I bringing into this bright, shiny new science? And am I willing to start changing it now and make real progress over the next nine months, the next nine years? I'll stop there and thank you very much. Thank you. 
Greg, if I may ask you just one question. Sure. Since you were up there, um, first of all, thank you for the thank you for the insight, and you know, just making this more visible to us what the Biden Cancer Initiative does. If I could expand on this just one step further. First of all, you know, I got involved with the cancer moonshot when it still was the cancer moonshot, and it actually ignited a lot of initiatives that, ha that are going to be long-term. They will make an impact, but they will not make an impact immediately. It will take yeah. some time, but to the point you made, the ignition was really the issue, and a lot of stuff got off the ground that will bear fruit over time. So uh, if you now look at what you're currently doing under the new label, uh, no longer called Cancer Moonshot, can you give us a few concrete examples? Exactly what is it and how does this community of I.O. Uh, connect to it and how can we help? Yes, thank you. So, and, and Axel was very in, instrumental in what some of the work we did in the Moonshot and the summit. <clears throat> we'll have another summit in September that will, just like the first summit, had 270 workshops simultaneously around the country. This one will be the same model, and we'll have an interactive program where people can choose what subjects they want to work on, and we have, we'll have modules for each of those subjects, and then they can dial in or zoom in to the plenary speeches uh, by Biden and others. So it's good, good timing on the question, because we just had our advisory committee meeting yesterday on our first three challenges, which is data sharing model, a data standards model, and new, new approaches to clinical trials and pediatric clinical trials. So as an example, in data sharing, you have a basic problem. The information that you want to share is biological. The people who know how to use a big set of shared data are data scientists. So the people who need to know what's in all the data are not the best people to be doing the data science and the data science people don't always know what to look for unless you tell them. So first challenge is, do you have big data? And in most hospitals, they don't, because they only have their own data. So we're now working on a model of building a data trust modeled after a land trust, where you have a literal trustee, a nonprofit trustee, and you would have rules for what data means for it to go into this trust, and you would be able to do your study on the data without it leaving the trust. You would take your analysis uh, question and your analysis algorithm and you would exercise it in the cloud where the data is, not on your computer, so you don't have to deal with the data being downloaded and all the protections that go with it when it leaves its site. So we will do this through partnerships with different institutions that are willing to try this. NIH has done this before with certain things like the Genomic Data Commons in Chicago, which was built off of the Cancer Genome Atlas. Um, so there are some specific rules you would have to have around data trust to address the contributor's concern about misuse or venal use, which happens. And you also want the users to have enough freedom so that the people who donated the data can't tell them, oh, you can't ask that question because that's not an open system. So you have to have an open system with certain rules. It's a commons. And we're all familiar with the tragedy of the commons. If you don't take care of the commons as if you all own it, then you all suffer. But if you do nurture it, then you all benefit. Now, with standards, it's a little more difficult. Here's the question. We know now that it's a Tower of Babel, and every hospital and cancer center has its own practices and languages, and they would argue that was designed to be the best interest of their patients, and they're not going to change it. So what do you do? You can build a workaround 
So you put, and they exist, you put it on top of every system's IT for their health records and information, and it translates it on the way out into whatever system it's going to. So you can compare two, three, five, ten different data sets. That can work, but it's a workaround. Now, why would you build a new system with a workaround, right? That just doesn't make sense. It'd be like if you had, in New York, they decided to put a permanent detour on Fifth Avenue and make you, you know, wind around the block because they were just, didn't want to fix the road. It's the same thing. So we're opting to fix the road. We're opting to go to the standard setting groups and say, with this use case, say colon cancer or multiple myeloma, here are, here are the common data elements that we need to standardize. Here's the pathology we need to standardize. Here are the diagnoses we need to standardize. <clears throat> and try it and show people how much better it is if you can trust what somebody else in your business has just been doing. Now, there are some other issues we will deal with as we go along. These were the first three. But, for instance, the whole issue of access to medicine, pricing, as well as social economic access. There is not an easy answer to pricing because the whole system is screwed up. Now, people who think about it very thinly always blame just the drug industry. And there's plenty of blame in the drug industry. I was at Pfizer. I asked, how do we set prices? Four hours later, I came out of the room never asking that question again. It looked like a map from, you know, uh, um, a James Bond movie with lines going everywhere. And if you set the price here, then in France they do this, and then Turkey will do this off of France. It's complicated, as the president would say. So the other problem is the pharmacy benefit managers take a rebate, which I refer to as a bribe. The insurance companies delay the entry of innovative drugs that they're too expensive and they bust their budget this year. Why do they have these problems? <clears throat> you know, this is where I really need that little voice to turn off because you probably haven't heard this part before. The reason we have these problems is because health is not organized financially as an asset class. It's organized as a cost. It's organized as a cost. Why? And what do I mean by that? When oil in the 70s went up, everybody freaked out. When oil in the 20, 2000s goes down, everybody freaks out. Why? In the 70s, you could not own oil futures. You could not bet on the price of oil. So it was a cost, and everybody had to pay it. Now you can invest in oil, and you all are, whether you know it or not. And other people trade oil just the way they would trade gold, because it's a commodity, and you can trade it for money, not for the oil. And so now it's an asset, and so people like it when the price is high. Well, the problem with health is 50 years ago you had nothing to buy. Now you have tons of things to buy that work. <clears throat> How can you pay for a drug that saves your life in one fell swoop and you get to pay your house over 30 years? Have you ever thought about that? Why should anybody have to pay today something like $800,000 for, say, Spark Therapeutics' eye therapy, which gives you your sight back all at once when you can have 30 years on your house? And the answer is because we've never financialized health. And there's no futures market in health. So if you want to take advantage of innovation, you want to make a bet on the future. But in health, there's nowhere to make the bet. And as a result, 
Insurance companies operate on a year-to-year basis. Who does that? They don't know their population next year, so they can only do, they can only set a budget and hope it goes well. And drug companies think, I'm only going to get one shot at this patient. This isn't Lipitor. This is Opdivo. I get one shot, and I've got to get all my profit from that one treatment. Well, this cries out for a futures market. It cries out for a way to say, you know what? I'm an insurance company. I will pay for your phase three development of that drug if we can set the price right now. And if it fails, it's my money, not your money. And if it succeeds, I want the benefit of having funded the development so I can get a much better price for my budget because I just saved you $100 million in your budget. But nobody does that because we don't have the financial tools to do it, and that is going to change. So that's probably more than you wanted to know about pricing, but we're, the, the, the sad fact is the incredible silver lining of what you do is being clouded every day by people's concerns they can't pay for it because we don't have a system to spread that cost over players who are willing to make a bet on those costs and over time. And if we fix those things, then we can start bringing pricing down or make it more affordable. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Axel. The annual Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference bridges clinical, scientific, and business developments in I.O. to provide a genuine 360-degree perspective so as a community we can drive faster advancements to eradicate cancer. For more information about the event, visit www.io360summit.com. Thanks for listening.